Well, I'm glad you're here, glad you're indoors right now and uh, not out in the rain. Uh, if you have your, your worship folder, it looks something like this. Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and pull out the notes section. Uh, mine is not here. So um, as the guy handing out bulletins says, he walks up and asks if I'd like to know what I'm preaching on this morning. Um, so because my notes aren't here, I guess I don't know. Uh, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to jump into things. I want you to open your Bibles, too, to Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles at the back table. Uh, some of our ushers will be happy to get you one if you pop your hand up. Uh, we'll just get you a Bible. We've been in this series that we've been calling Hard to Believe. And kind of the little tagline underneath it says, The Astonishing Invitation of Jesus. And we've been going through some of the different things that He says in the Scriptures. And some of the different things that He said as He roamed the earth in bodily form uh, making these various statements and what a challenge they were then and how radical and counterintuitive uh, they are right now. Uh, it's been so exciting to talk to many of you and just to hear from you and hear of the transformation that's going on in your life. Some of you are going through big life changes. Some of you are, are asking big, tough questions with regard uh, to, your, to your career, somewhat in light of, of these messages in light of your finances, in light of your time, in light of just kind of the direction your life is going. We've looked at this, come and die, Jesus says. He invites people, invites His disciples, come and give your life. Glenn shared with us, come and give. Kurt, last week, showing images of India and his recent trip, come and get involved with what's happening around the world, with what God is doing. As you can tell from the, the sermon title this morning, uh, this morning we're, we're going to look at this invitation. Jesus said this, come and be perfect. Like I said, counterintuitive. That doesn't sound like that's going to draw a large following to me. If I were to try and do that, I'd say, come and try really, really hard. And we'll help you feel good about your process along the way. Now, Rob asked a question. I don't know if you, if you caught it or, or had time to think about it. Um, but he asked this question, what have you done perfectly this week? What have you done absolutely perfect this week? And uh, as Rob and I were kind of dis- discussing this morning's message in kind of di- different directions with worship, um, that's a part of why worship should astound us so much, is we get to come face to face with a holy, perfect God. And we get to read in the scriptures, we get to look at the life of Jesus and say, this is what perfection looks like. Now, I thought about something as mundane and simple as something that you've been doing almost every day of your, of your life that you have been conscious. And that is, most of you, I'm, I'm trying to look and see, uh, but most of you looked at your hair this morning, right? Yeah? Yeah? Somewhat? Some of you are like, no, not at all. Uh, why do you think I'm wearing a cap? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you know what? Most of us comb our hair. Uh, every day. If we have it, we comb it. You know, we look at it, we try, to, we try to do something with it. Now, let me ask you this, uh, especially on a day like today. Ever had a bad hair day, right? Yeah, most days for a lot of people are bad hair days, you know. And did you do it perfectly, like to the utmost of perfection, is your hair in line and under your control for the duration of the entire day? That's one day with something as mundane as hair, that we have tons of practice at. And frankly, we're just not very good at it. We use product. We try to do things to it. But you know what? It's a little bit out of our control. How about brushing your teeth? I don't know if we have any dentists in here. But every time I go to the dentist, I realize I don't brush my teeth as good as I should. Because he shows me the little thing and, you know, I've got my Sonicare going. But I'm like, yeah. Did you brush your teeth perfectly today? Did you care for your teeth perfectly? Okay. These are mundane things. Hopefully, you practice these things often. Hair care, teeth care, right? How about something like love? Did you and I love one hour, one day, perfectly this week? These are just challenging kinds of questions. Those are the bigger things. And yet Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you can read it for yourself. If you have the red letter edition, it means Jesus is talking. And it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sound hard? It is. It's really hard. Some of you, if, if you think back on your week, 
Um, maybe some of you have seen these, but these, these are just great uh, because I, I think they sum up probably our week more than, than perfection. Um, and they're, they're called the, the demotivational slides. And they go like this. This one says defeat. For every winner, there are dozens of losers. Odds are you're one of them. So it says failure when your best just isn't good enough. Futility. You'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And statistically speaking, 99% of the shots you do. If you ever play golf, you know that's true. Ineptitude. If you can't learn to do something well, learn to enjoy doing it poorly. Losing. If at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. (laughs) Mediocrity. It takes a lot less time, and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. (laughs) Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Pessimism. Every dark cloud has its silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. Procrastination. Hard work often pays off after time, but laziness always pays off now. And finally, agony. Not all pain is gain. So maybe as you look at your week and you say, what have I done just perfectly this week? Maybe you go, man, my job, I feel like more some of those right there. And some of those would characterize my week more than perfection. The Bible makes it really clear that holiness is essential to the Christian life. Holiness is essential to knowing God, to seeing God. Think about what's essential in your life. Hair product isn't essential. A warm shower this morning, that's not essential. What's essential to you being alive right now is air, right? You cannot do without that. You will not live without taking another breath in about 30, 40 seconds to begin to feel uncomfortable a few minutes before you pass out and start having problems. The Bible says that holiness is that essential to your spiritual life. Without it, you'll die. You won't be alive. Look at these scriptures. You can just write these down, look them up later, make sure I'm not lying. But Ephesians 1.4, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to what? To be holy and blameless in His sight. Hebrews 12.14, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one We'll see God. And First Peter 1.15 <clears throat> But just as he, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Again, taking stock, taking inventory of just one week. How are we doing? Gathered here in this room this morning are no doubt those who claim the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. How are we doing with this? There's an entire book in the Bible devoted to holiness. It's called Leviticus. And Leviticus 11.44, I don't have it on the screen, but you can write it down. It says this. This is a sampling of it, of of what Leviticus is about. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy. Because I am holy. Another place before the entire assembly, there's this charge for the entire nation of Israel to be holy or set apart for the purpose of God. So how do we accept this invitation? There are some invitations you go, man, I just can't accept that invitation. Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, be perfect. How can I I attain perfection? I want to ask for uh, I want to ask for a few volunteers. I just want three people to to uh, shoot their hand up right now, and we'll go ahead and these two guys right here, and I need one more. Okay, uh, Ben, come on up. Actually, Rick, you come up, Rick. All right. Now, church should be fun, and uh, we're going to make church fun. So uh, these are Snickers. And you can't eat them. You just need to take three. Okay, I just met these guys. These guys are so cool for helping me out. Cody and Billy, I meet them. I say, hey, would you guys be willing to come up? All right, you guys stand right along the front here. Okay. Um, now, let me just ask you a quick question. Have any of the three of you ever been in a juggling contest before? No? Okay. They're like, no. 
not this week anyways. All right, here's what, here's what we're going to do. When I say go, you're going to take, you're going to take your three Snickers and you're going to start to juggle, okay? And you're going to, you're just going to keep juggling until I say stop, okay? Everyone got it? Okay. Uh, here, here we go. You guys ready? And we'll do more than one round. We'll see how this goes. Uh, here we go. All right, Billy and Cody, you might want to give each other some space. There you go. We don't want any blood here. All right, here we go. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay. Do you guys understand the rules of the game? No, I'm just kidding. Let's try one more time. Try one more time. Okay. We've got Snickers flying everywhere. Trevor's in the front going, please, Lord, let one fall in my lap. Here we go. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay. Yeah, give, give a round of applause these guys. Okay, stay up here. Stay up here for one second. Now, surely, in a, in a group this size, surely there's someone out there who knows how to juggle. Is there anyone, Rob knows how to juggle. Do you think you can beat these three? Get up here, Rob. Quick, quick, quick. Run up here. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have one more round. Get up here, Rob. I know you're fit. You can get up here quicker than that. We're going to do, we're going to do one more round, and this time we're going to have Rob, who is a self-proclaimed, at least, sort of juggler, and we're going to see if, if he can beat these three guys who had no idea what they were going to be doing when they volunteered. On your mark. There's a lot of pressure on you now, Rob. On your mark. Get set, go. Okay, we have juggling. Okay, you guys, you guys can take your Snickers for your trouble. Thank you so much. Give them a round of applause, you guys. All right. Now, I don't want you just thinking about Snickers now. All of you are like, man, those look so good. Um, let me just ask you a question. Who... Who won the, the contest? Rob. Okay. Rick. Who said Rick? <laughs> That's a sympathy vote. Come on, man. <clears throat> Here's the reality of it is um, actually all, all four of them lost miserably uh, because the, 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 the rules of this juggling contest are that you're supposed to juggle uh, for the next 24 hours. And um, so, so they all lost miserably, actually. Uh, even Rob, the self-proclaimed juggler, um, Lost miserably because uh, they didn't even touch the 24-hour time limit. Um, don't be bitter, Rob. You'll get over it. Um, here's the thing with that. We, we see this, and, and maybe some of you saw three people struggling at juggling. You're like, man, I could juggle better than that. Come on, man. And, and, then, uh, and then you realize it's harder to juggle in front of people, too. It's easier in your own bedroom. But even if you can juggle, even if you're, even if you're a, a trained juggler, someone who's really good at it, um, to juggle straight for 24 hours is probably pretty difficult. To do it for an entire week is, is impossible, right? I mean, nonstop, right? To do it for a lifetime is just utterly absurd. Here's why I brought up jugglers, and here's why I brought up this little demonstration is this. The holiness that God requires is juggling from, from now until you die, nonstop. And you look at that and you say, well, that is impossible and that's exactly the point that God makes with the law. The law it was laid out to the Israelites, and it basically laid out this system that said this is such a high standard that you can't ever achieve it apart from me. It was always to point out the need for a Savior. The need for someone to come and juggle for you, in essence. Now get this. We had three regular people who didn't know they were going to be in a juggling contest and just by their good graciousness, came up and decided to, to participate in this. Now, what if we had someone in here who regularly performs at Pier 39 and juggles things on fire and machetes and does all this kind of stuff? Here's why I brought Rob up. Rob thought he could beat these three, and he probably did. It was actually pretty close, but, um, but it was better than, I think, the three, because, I mean, he at least could juggle, right? The Pharisees were, in essence, those who were well-trained at juggling. They had figured out how to juggle. In fact, they could stand on the street corner like Pier 39 and they could juggle like bowling pins. And then say, here, toss me that bowling ball. Whoop! And then they'd sit there and start doing the bowling ball. And then they'd light something on fire. They'd do it behind their back. And they were phenomenal jugglers. They had worked out. They would practiced long, hard hours. And they became masters at juggling. And then what they began to do is they began to interpret the rules of this contest that we just had to say only those who can do such, such, and such 
win at this contest. And what it did was it excluded all of us regular people who don't really know how to juggle very well. And all we could do is sit and kind of marvel at their ability to juggle for a whole solid hour. When the real rules of the game, when God's rules of the game said, no, 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 you don't just juggle for an hour or things on fire or sharp metal objects. You have to juggle for all of, for all of your life. If you want to live by the law, that's what it is. 100% perfect the rest of this day. 100% perfect the next day. All of next week. All of next year, 2009. For the rest of your life, living perfect. And if you slip up once, you lose. You're a loser. You lose at the game. And the religious people, it's no different today. We don't call them Pharisees, but God hates religion. Because do you see how if I'm a Pharisee and I'm really good at juggling and I deceive the people into thinking that I am holy or righteous or a great juggler or winning the contest apart from God? Do you see how that detracts from the whole point of the law in the first place? And that is that we're all losers, that we can't make it, that we're in desperate and dire need of a Savior? Here's step one to being perfect. Quite simply, admit that I'm a loser. We, we read those kind of first opening demotivational slides and you're like, ouch, that kind of hurts, you know, pessimism and mediocrity and failure. But the reality is, as, as you look at your life, you go, yeah, th- these things are there. I can't even control my hair, for Pete's sake, on a day like today. Much less the relationships or the people around me or my career or my health or my finances. I'd like to think I'm in control. I'd like to think that I can overcome temptation all by myself. It just doesn't work. Hebrews 7.18 says this. It says, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And now a better hope has taken its place. And that is how we draw near to God. The now that has come and taken the place of the law is the Messiah. It's the promised Messiah. It's the one who's going to come and save us out of our miserable attempts at juggling. Our miserable attempts at perfection on our own. If you walk in here and you see the words, be perfect, come and be perfect, and that discourages you, I hope this lifts your spirits. I hope this begins to change your heart and mind. Uh, Look up just a few verses from where you are in in Matthew chapter 5. And starting in verse 3, we have Jesus. These are called the Beatitudes. But just look at these first few verses. And look at the tense that he's talking about. It's the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me just stop there for a second. How many of you are striving after being poor? How many out there are striving to be those who mourn? How many are striving for meekness? How many of you long to be hungry and thirsty. All of those things are at the bottom of the pile. Those are the things most people spend an entire lifetime running from. Building walls to protect themselves from those sort of things. Saying that all those things are for the losers. Or for those who don't win. God blesses the losers. Part of the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is just that. God blesses those who are the have-nots. I wonder if you and I really believe this. I wonder if we, we come in here and, and we can give kind of intellectual assent to that idea. Yeah, I understand that. I know that. God wants me needy before I can really receive from Him. But I wonder how much of the rest of our week is spent living just like the rest of the people who would say, that's not true at all. I've got to do this. I've got to go after this. I've got to keep these balls in the air. I can't let one of them falter. And if they do, I've got to pick it up quick so no one sees that I dropped it and start in again. John Fisher said this, How has a church that was once the happy possession of common fishermen 
and prostitutes and tax collectors become the home of the spiritually elite. Far be it from Neighborhood Bible Church to ever be a place where people come in and have a sense that, wow, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not at some certain spiritual level. I can't go to this church. We're not doing our job well as disciples if that's the vibe that we give off collectively as a body. If we can't come in here and let our hair down and say, I am struggling. I am desperate for church this morning. I'm in dire need of, of, of some songs to lift my spirits and get me through another day. I am barely hanging on and I need prayer desperately. If that isn't a regular part of your spiritual journey, if it's been a long time since you've ever sensed that, I would, I would challenge you that there's trouble there. I would challenge you that there's a glaze of, of Phariseeism that's starting to come over your life that says, don't show that part. Don't reveal that part. Rich Mullins, in a great song, said this, the whores all seem to love him, and the drunks propose a toast. Talking about Jesus. They love the guy. They cheered him on. They, invite, they said, man, we want to be around you. Would you come to my house? We're having a party. Somehow Jesus, who was perfect, 100% perfect all the time, interacted with, befriended, and was loved by those who were in deep sin. Here's the principle. If you and I become spiritually rich, or if you and I have already received perfect righteousness, and we don't hunger and thirst for it, we won't, we won't be after it. We won't receive it. Catch this. Deserve God's special favor, and it's no longer grace. We're no longer saved by grace if something that I do says, I deserve this. God, look at how long I've juggled. I win. Deserve God's special favor, and it's no longer grace. Needy people get the blessing because they get the point that they're needy. They come to grips with that. Now, I put on the screen here, admit that I'm a loser. That's a hard thing to see. Some of you think back immediately to junior high or high school where, where those were real pains, and you go, man, uh, those are kind of harsh words. I don't just mean loser like in terms of some social outcast or someone called you a name one time. I mean a loser in saying, God, I cannot keep up the juggling. can't do it. And you know what? I never, ever will. And so I just let go. Yeah, I can't win with this. I lost. And that's the starting point of spiritual life. That's where Jesus says, okay, now I can come in and work. Psalm 51 is a great picture of David, a king, who confesses his sin. He confesses. He admits he's a loser, basically. And if you go read Psalm 50, 51, you'll see at least three things. That when you and I admit we're losers, it should encompass these three things. One is it, it should be personal. You can't admit loserhood for someone else. God, they're a loser. That's not the point of it. And you know what? Your parents can't do it for you. Your pastor can't come and do it for you. You have to come to grips with it and say, I'm a loser, God. I admit it. It has to be personal. It also has to be complete. Look at Psalm 51 sometime. Read the context. A lot of your Bibles will have little notes saying, saying when he wrote that particular psalm and the circumstances surrounding it. You go to the Old Testament, it's a living illustration from the guy's life about what he was going through at that time, and it becomes all the more powerful that he's confessing his sin. Your admonition of loserhood should be personal, should be complete, and thirdly, it should be without condition. A lot of times we like to come to God and say, God, you know, I, I confess this, but you know what? Uh, I'm a loser, but so is that person over there. Uh, you know, I'm a loser, but it wasn't totally my fault, really. I mean, I was goaded into it. They really kind of made me do it, actually. No, coming to God and just saying, without condition, uh, you know, I didn't drop the balls because Cody was over here, you know, his elbows were too high and got in my field of vision. But we do that. We do that with each other. We do that with God. Admit you're a loser. For most people, the word sin inside and outside the church, conjures up black thoughts, negative thoughts, bad images, maybe red-faced authority figures, maybe punishment, 
Maybe for some of you, even abuse. You sinned, you missed the mark, you did something wrong, and there's someone there to lay the smack down on you. You show up a little bit late, boom, boss is there. I've been caught, and now I have to answer to a person who has the power to convict me. But let me just turn your thinking for a second. What if sin is ultimately connected to forgiveness? What if the person I have to answer to has already obtained, at great personal cost to himself, my pardon? What if God isn't my third grade teacher who screamed at me, my father who abused me, or the preacher who condemned me? What if God is not only the judge, but the one who's there waiting with open arms? Wouldn't sin begin to take on kind of a a little bit of a different connotation? Sin would become maybe not a swear word, not a word you would avoid, but maybe a favorite kind of a word. Where you say, man, when I come face to face with my sin, when I confess it the way that King David did in Psalm 51, when I admit my need, that's when I'm closest to God. That's when I'm right there receiving the blessing. John 3.17, Jesus, being talked about Jesus, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Number two here is this, expose the big Christian lie. You know what the big Christian lie is? The big Christian lie is quite simply this. More of God in my life equals less sin. Sounds pretty reasonable, don't you think? More of God in my life, less sin. We used to sing a song in youth group, like when I was a little kid, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. That was a lawnmower. I didn't figure that out for years. I didn't know what they were doing, but I did the hand motions anyways. I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. And the idea was that the more God you have, the less sin in your life. Here's why I think it's the big Christian lie. Is I think the opposite is true. If by more of sin, you mean more awareness of sin. I want you to think in your minds, some of you won't know this parable, but Jesus tells this parable of two different people who had been forgiven a debt. One had a little tiny minuscule debt, And one had a huge debt. And at the end of that, the whole point of that story was this. Jesus made this comment. The one who's been forgiven little loves what? Just a little bit. The one who's been forgiven just massive amounts of debt, their arms are already open. They love much. Now here's the point of that though. Whether you, have, uh, whether you have stood up here and juggled for five minutes or two minutes or three days, none of you up here who are trying to juggle have any claim of righteousness, right? Have any claim of perfection, have any claim of winning. So whether you, whether you admit to little sin or a lot of sin, they all lose at this game of juggling. It's just that some lose quicker than others. And it really doesn't matter. It's all so small compared to an entire lifetime of juggling. It's not even worth comparing whatsoever. And that's the picture of sin. It's not really true. See, we tend to think that in this room, there are some in here who have a little to be forgiven and some in here who have a lot to be forgiven. That's inaccurate. We all are dead and dying in our sin unless we're rescued from it. Period. So whether you have a lot of death in you and it's going to happen quicker or comparatively a little death in you and it's going to happen just a little bit later, do you see how that makes no sense at all to compare that? Only those who are aware of their sin, only those who are aware of how much God's forgiven really understand grace. And that's why I would say More of God equals more of sin. Not meaning that you sin more, but you're more and more aware of your sin. Some of you, when you first got saved, you you, you realized grace. And you said, God, thank you so much for forgiving me. I can't believe this is all free. And you just wake up every day and just go, I can't believe I'm forgiven of my past, my present, my future. And God, thank you so much. It's on your lips. It's on your tongue. It's on your heart. It's on your mind. And then as you begin to proceed down the Christian walk, you go, man, 
I'm getting my life cleaned up. God's given me power to overcome this temptation and that temptation. This relationship's starting to straighten out. I'm starting to figure this thing out a little bit. As you progress a little further, you begin to realize, wow, I'm really bothered by the fact that I think that way. I used to be able to think that way, and that never bothered me for a second. Because I was doing all this other junk that my, my brain didn't even have time to process that this might be wrong, but this is wrong. And you realize, man, there's more sin here than I thought. God, you need to start changing my mind on this. And then you come over here and you've got this, this attitude towards a family member that you thought was long gone, and it's right there. They wrong you once and it flares up. You go, wow, there's sin there too. God, everywhere, I mean, the older I get in Christ, even more do I realize my need for grace. And I think at the age of 60, I ought to be even more overwhelmed with the debt of gratitude saying, God, thank you. I thought you were forgiving me this much when I first got saved. When I, when I realize now, it's so much more. Paul understood this. Don't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this, verses 9 to 10. This is Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament. Probably one of the greatest Christians to ever live. He says this, For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out His special favor on me. And not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God, who was working through me by His grace. I want you to catch two things about this passage. The first is that he says this, I am the least of the apostles. Do you see that present tense? If I was Paul, I'd be tempted to say this, I was the worst of the apostles, but now I've written most of the New Testament. God's used me to do incredible things. And you can too. It would turn into an infomercial. I don't, you know, you guys would be there too. You'd want to say that. Man, I used to be so messed up. I used to have no power at all. But now, look at me. And what happens is, sometimes our Christian testimony, we hold up supposedly this gleaming Christian life as, as this is the example. And then what happens is this. What happens when you fall? What happens when your coworkers who say, that's what a Christian's supposed to be? Because you just blew it. You just lost your temper all over the office. And you're trying to clean it up as quick as possible. It doesn't clean up very good. Or, internally things begin to happen. You go, well, I can't let anyone see that. I've already held up that this is what a Christian is. Paul says this, I am the least of the apostles. So that's one thing I want you to see. The other thing about this passage I want you to see is this. Verse 10, he says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out His special favor on me. Do you see the humility pouring out of that? Leader of the church. Writer of the scriptures. And not without results. And then he says this, For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Sound like bragging? Watch what he follows it up with. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by His grace. Bottom line is this. He didn't just let go and let God once he got saved. Say, here, God, I'll just sit here. There was a cooperation there. He took all the vigor and energy and competitiveness and drive that he had towards exterminating God's church. And God, when he saved him, he didn't just take away all that personality. God wired him for a very specific purpose. He just said, now you're going to do it for the right reasons over here. You're going to take all that drive, all that competitiveness, all that drivenness, and you're going to, you're going to establish the church. You're going to grow the church. And I love that. I love that he didn't just stop working. Just that now he had God working in him. Some of you here might smugly be sitting here saying, yeah, I, I don't really struggle with that. I don't have any Pharisee in me at all. Let me just say this. If you have ever judged someone, if you have ever felt morally superior to another person, I'm sure you never breathed a word of it, but if you just even thought it, if you've ever been shocked by someone's sin story, they're sharing with you some of the struggles they have, and you're like, whoa, that's pretty bad. <laughs> you know what? I would just caution you. Beware the Pharisee. Because what you start to do is go, wow, they can't juggle very good. They're just they're dropping balls left and right. We're all tempted to play by, by the rules 
of the law. What happens is we transfer our definition of success in a lot of the world's arenas in just the stuff of life arena that we live in and we try, we try to transfer that to our relationship with God. And we make a huge miscalculation. What we, what we end up with is, is judgmental, hypocritical Christians. Which if you ask a lot of people why they don't go to church, they say, there's a bunch of hypocrites in there. I already feel bad. Why on earth would I want to go to church and be judged? That's what happens when we keep our line of thinking, of thinking that somehow we make ourselves a success in this thing called the Christian walk instead of throwing ourselves at the mercy of the court. Let me ask you this. What does God see when he looks at you? When he looks at you, what does God see? Galatians 2.16 says this. Know that a man or woman is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If you have a spiritual resume, it ought to have one thing on it. It ought to have the word Jesus. That's it. Let me see your credentials. Let me see your spiritual resume. You just go, man, it's real simple. I can write on this napkin for you. Here it is. Jesus. That's it? That's it. Don't you go to church though? Sure I do. Don't you do this, 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 and this? Absolutely. But none of that belongs on my resume. The only thing on my resume, the only thing that will justify me is Jesus. That's it. No observing the law will ever gain my approval to God. So now look at this title that we have again. Come and be perfect. Hopefully your eyes and minds are starting to reassess. Here's how we correct this problem. I just want to share with you two things. One is to recognize that you are an expert at sinning. Notice I said you are an expert at sinning. Not you were, and then you got saved, and now you never sin anymore. That's the hypocrite. That's the Pharisee. That's the fake juggler. You are an expert at sinning. Maybe a good church exercise would be have us all sit in a big circle and say, Hi, I'm Dave, and I'm an expert at sinning. Now, truthfully, if you take the Ten Commandments, you're not equally expert at all ten. You probably have one, two, or three that you go, Man, if you could take away those three, I could almost do this thing. Because those other seven commandments, I never struggle with those. But the reality is, there's probably one or two of the Ten Commandments you're like, Ooh, that one really is a zinger. I'm good at that one. I'm an expert at sinning. Part of it is just recognizing that. Secondly is this. I don't know if any of you have have ever been an addict in here, are an addict, known an addict of any kind. But realize this, that recovery from addiction is never complete. What I mean by that is this. An alcoholic is one sip away from falling off the wagon. I've known people that in my entire lifetime, I've never known them to drink alcohol. And they say this way, I am an alcoholic. Because they realize they cannot even touch the stuff or be near people who touch the stuff because it will trigger something and it will send them down a bad path again. I go, man, I've never ever even heard you talk about liquor at all. It's a problem for you? Yeah, it is. Current. And so to recognize that in the flesh we will always struggle with sin. The second we begin to say, I used to this. I was this. I was the least of the apostles. I used to do this. And we begin to feel that we have it. Take caution. Because that's when pride comes before the fall. We begin to think we have something like... Now, that doesn't mean there's not victory in Christ. And I'm sure there's amazing testimony, in my own life there is, of God giving us victory. But to not let our guard down and say that somehow sinning is something from our past. We will always wrestle with this as long as we're in the flesh. We stay needy. We stay poor. We stay losers. And that's that's where grace comes in. God, you're the one in my life. Bono said this, that the scriptures are full of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries. used to shock me. But now it is a source of great comfort. You've got to read the characters that are in the Bible. Read their stories. They were all of these things. Absolute connivers, liars, murderers, adulterers, 
Ones who went out and hired people to kill people. They did atrocious things. They sound like people you know. They sound like you and I. They sound like fallen creatures who are enslaved to sin. And yet God comes along and look at the hero of the Old Testament. It's always God. Every time. It's not Moses. Moses hits the water because the people are thirsty or he hits the rock, I mean, and water comes out. That's not Moses. God said, I'm going to be there standing before you. And then when you whack that rock, water's going to come out. Who's the hero? God. Every time. God's the one who comes in and saves. God's the hero of your story. If your testimony ever elevates you or, or me, if mine ever elevates me, we've got it wrong. God's the hero. I want to just say two words really quick. Justification and sanctification. We've been talking right now about justification. This idea of being made perfect is this idea of it being a gift from God. Justification is essentially this, that we are made right with God once for all time and that you and I cannot add or take away from the completed work of Christ on the cross for us. We're justified. We're made right. The Bible says it's credited to our account, basically. The debt is covered. Justified. So in one sense, the moment you trust in Christ, you're perfect. You are present tests regarded, according to Colossians 3, as holy and beloved right then and there. Holy, set apart, consecrated. But then there's this other element, and this is the word sanctification, that born out of this new life with God, we begin to work out, the Bible says, our salvation with fear and what? Trembling. We're to work out our salvation. Not coast along. Not say, well, I'm in. Party on. No, no, no. We're to work hard at it. We're to work out our salvation and press forward with it. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And briefly as we close, I just want to give you six things. This is out of the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to go home and read the Sermon on the Mount, that would be a great starting place to figure out this word sanctification. God, what is it you want me to be doing? What am I supposed to be progressing in? I'm challenged to work hard at my faith, but it's not working hard to be perfect, to be one of the perfect jugglers to be made right in your side. I've already been declared a winner. Contest over. Now I get to pick up and start doing it out of a totally different context. Isn't it different to, to, be, to begin doing the right things out of the motive of being a beloved son, a beloved daughter, than being a servant? That's what God's done for us. That's where justification comes in. We're justified. We're made right. Now, go live it out. Out of the context of that identity, go and live it out. Sanctification. We're to grow in holiness. We're to grow in perfection. That unattainable goal of being just like Christ. Here it is. Here's the six radical statements that, that Jesus made. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, move from murder. I don't murder. Move from murder to no anger. If you want your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, the fake jugglers, here's what you do. You move from beyond the law, which said murder, to the heart of the law, which said don't be angry. That's an internal attitude adjustment. Someone wrongs you and you're able to let it go. Number two, from no adultery to no lust. That means purity of heart behind the external faithfulness that you might say. I'm a virgin, not married yet. But what about your thought life? What about your purity? What's there on the inside? Do you see how this is impossible without God? We can't do this on our own. You wrong me today, I'm going to want to wrong you back in the flesh every time. And do it twice as hard. I learned this with my three brothers. You punch me once, I punch you back twice as hard. Or twice. This is how wars go on for years. Right? There's blood on your hands. We're going to get you. And it just escalates. Number three is this. From divorce to faithfulness. This is, this is the idea of a righteousness 
of, of growing in our sanctification, of being so transformed into, into the power of Christ, into trusting Christ so much that we find our marriage answers. We find the solutions to the most vexing problems in our marriage, not by going through the right channels and being patted on the back for doing it graciously. Well, you sure divorce that person kindly and nicely. But rather, by total faithfulness. Rather by saying, God... I'm not going to go the external route, which is divorce. I'm going to go the internal route. I'm going to trust you to transform my heart and life to be faithful to this woman, to this man, for all of time, because that's what I vowed and that's what you can supply for me. Number four, from oath-keeping to simple honesty. Lives and lips that are so honest that it makes oath-keeping and oath-making completely obsolete. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Anything beyond that, no, 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 I really promise this time, shows that something is wrong. That's from James. Anything beyond that shows something is wrong. You don't need an oath from someone who every single time keeps their word. Psalm 15 says, swear to your own hurt. Just simple truth. Number five, from retaliation to loving contentment. This is where Jesus talked about an eye for an eye. Remember that famous passage? He goes on to say, do not resist, turn the other cheek, give the shirt off your back. Someone forces you to go one mile, you go two miles with them. Next week, Darren's going to talk about loving our enemies. That's our next radical invitation for Christ. So I won't go too much into that. Now just notice this, that while this is mostly internal change we're talking about, it's going to flush itself out in external kinds of ways. Your enemies will begin to stand up and take notice if you treat them in the way that the Scriptures challenge us to. And finally, from limited love to loving your enemies. And that's where Darren's going next week. We do, uh, we do a little thing in our family with the guys. We have this dude's devotions, we call it. And at the end of every night of dude's devotions is this little part. It says, you can do it. And for some reason, the boys have taken to turning that into something like a game show where they go, you can do it. And they just, every night, it's this bizarre thing. I don't even know where it came from. But the whole point of you can do it is that then there's kind of this application or this, this point that says, here, go out and do this. And I want to put up a, a, a passage on the screen for us to, to look at and meditate as we close this morning. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. And if you turn there, is it not there? All right, I'll just have to read it for you then. Um, Write this down because this is one of those that is worth reading and meditating on this week. It's one of those worth circling in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. Notice how many times the word all, the word abound, the word every show up in this passage. This isn't little chintzy you can do it. This is you can do it. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who has... He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. God's grace abounds in our weakness. He'll he'll richly supply us with everything that we need to grow in holiness. Notice the emphasis. He will. He will. Paul understood that. I work hard. I've achieved much, but not me. It's God's grace that's working in me to be more like Christ, to be perfect. I want to invite the band up and I want Rich Henderson to come up for a moment. Some of you need to get into a Bible study. You need to just... Buckle down and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to commit to getting involved with a group of men, a group of women, a group of, of people and begin to grow in this life. And the way God designed it, thankfully, is that we're designed to be in community. We need each other. Getting in our grill sometimes. Saying, hey, that's not who you are. You're acting not as who you are. 
Rich, why don't you share uh, just briefly about the, the men's study coming up? This, uh, this week we have two men's Bible studies starting up on the spiritual disciplines. And for a couple thousand years, the church just says this is the way you actually become more like Jesus. It's a way of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. We're using uh, Richard Foster's book, uh, Celebration of Discipline. And we have an early morning men's study that meets uh, Friday morning from 7 to 8.30 here at the church. And we have an early, early morning men's study that meets Tuesday morning 6 to 7. Uh, so if you're interested in that, come and talk to me. Uh, we're starting this Tuesday and this Friday. So men, Great. I'd love to have you get involved. Rich will be just in the back. Is that okay, Rich? And, and come and find Rich. Um, Chuck Adam, one of our community group leaders, along with Travis, the electric guitarist behind me, and Kel Cummins. Uh, they have a group that meets on Wednesday mornings out uh, 101 in Lawrence Expressway area. And in a couple of weeks, they're going to be taking on this same book, fantastic book. Uh, and this is open to any men in the church. And uh, just an opportunity to, to gather and... Um, what time? 6.30. 6.30, sorry. See? He's on top of things. Um, the rest of you, we have, uh, we have a great women's study that goes on on Monday nights. We have community groups. They're in your bulletin. Come and pursue me. I'll, I'll connect the dots for you if you'd like. And uh, we'd love to get you plugged into the body life of the church. Let's pray, and then, uh, and then we'll move on. We're going we're gonna to be taking our offering right now. It's a part of our worship. And uh, as the band leads us in a song, let me just pray and, and uh, prepare our hearts for that. God, thank you that we get to have a huge sigh of relief after some of the scriptures that we read this morning. God, that we can let down our guard, that we can just say, yeah, that's me, I'm needy, I struggle. And God, I pray that you would keep us humble. I pray, Lord, that as we see works go on in our life, that we would attribute the glory to you. I pray, God, that we would lay down the reins of trying to juggle on our own, realizing that it's futile. And Lord, thank you for the joy it is to be able to serve you to be able to do loving, good deeds, to be able to have lips that tell truth, to have a heart and mind and attitude and a peace that overwhelms us because You're at work in us. I thank You for the growth that we're able to see in one another's lives. I pray we would celebrate that. We would train our minds and our eyes to notice God at work in this place. And Lord, right now as we offer, I pray that it would be from hearts that are pure. There would be nothing external about it. God, that we'd be able to worship you as we bring our tithes and our offerings and say, here, Lord, they're yours anyways. In Jesus' name, amen.